What are the labels you are known by? The titles, the ways that people think about you, the ways that people describe you, the ways that you're known as. What labels describe you? We have labels, all of us. We label other people. Some of those labels have great value. Some of those labels bring shame. What are the labels that describe you? What are the labels that others have given to you? Maybe that even become a part of how you identify yourself. Not just individuals who have labels, families do. You might give yourself one label, but it'd be interesting to know what label your son or daughter-in-law gives your family. (laughs) Communities have labels. And once you get a label, once you're known as something, it can be very hard to change it. For example, as many of you know, I am from the city of Atlanta. It's where I grew up, it's where I lived for years before moving out here to Austin, and Atlanta has labels like any community, any city. It's known as many different things. But in the area of sports, Atlanta as known, is known as a very unique city. We were in second place in a category that no one wants to be in until LeBron James won a championship in Cleveland and Cleveland vaulted ahead of us. And now Atlanta is number one on a list for sports. It has a label, it's known as something. It is the most pathetic city (laughs) when it comes to sports in the country. That's not my opinion. Forbes magazine recently released a list of the most pathetic sports cities when it comes to professional sports, and Atlanta is number one on the list. And I know in Austin, some of you are feeling like UT may not have a great season this year. You have no idea. (laughs) Atlanta, in all major professional sports, football, baseball, basketball, hockey, and MLS soccer, has 170 years of seasons total in all of those sports, and in all of those 170 years, one title. One. Nobody else can claim that kind of ratio. <laughs> Nobody else in the country can claim that kind of ratio. Some of our sports, we haven't been close. The Atlanta Hawks have had some good teams in basketball, never been close to winning a title. Our one title did come from the Atlanta Braves, who won the World Series in 1995, but even that is bittersweet as an Atlantan to know because they made the playoffs for 14 straight years, only won one title, and had some of the most epic collapses in the history of baseball. But for any native Atlantan, they will tell you that nothing, nothing, nothing is quite as painful as our football team, the Atlanta Falcons. Now, most of their almost 60 years of history, they have been terrible as Atlantans come to expect from their sports teams, but in recent years, they actually have had a sustained period of success. And that period reached a climax about a year and a half ago when they made it to the Super Bowl. Only the second time in franchise history that we've been there. We have a big Super Bowl party in our neighborhood where we live. We go every year. We just sort of blindly accept because no Atlanta fan actually thinks that they'll be watching the game when it comes to the Super Bowl. But Atlanta was the number one seed in the playoffs. They made it to the NFC Championship game. They won that game, and they made it to the Super Bowl. And 
were playing Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, and the New England Patriots in the Super Bowl. So we showed up at this Super Bowl party in our neighborhood, 100 people there, and I was actually the person who was sitting down watching the game going, don't talk to me. Don't talk to me because this is I was texting with both of my brothers who uh, neither of whom live in Atlanta anymore either But we're all you know kind of born into this we're Atlanta fans about the game and it started out incredibly well and That makes a native Atlanta nervous Right, there's nothing peaceful about that because we know what to expect They went up on Tom Brady and 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 the Patriots at halftime They had a significant lead and in the third quarter, they scored a touchdown again to, again to go up 28 to 3. I want to say that again. In the, it's, it's taken me 18 months to get to the point I can say this out loud in front of people, and I'm okay with it. In the third quarter, they were winning 28 to 3. And when they came away from the commercial break, and, and the Falcons were getting ready to kick back off, and they're all celebrating, and we're all celebrating. They flashed a graphic on the screen that any native Atlantan's heart sank at the moment that it came up because it said, no Super Bowl team has ever come back from this big of a deficit. <laughs> and every native Atlantan said, we're the city to take that title. And sure enough, the Patriots went down and scored, and they scored again, and they scored again, and we couldn't get out of our own way, and they tied it. We lost in, in, in overtime. It was the kind of thing that Patriots fans were making fun of me and kind of teasing me when the Patriots were coming back, but the loss was so bad that when the game ended and the Super Bowl party ended, they were all looking at me going, sorry, man, we're not even, we're not, we're not going to make fun of you anymore. Falcons suffered through last year, making the playoffs, losing on the last play of the game in the playoffs to the Philadelphia Eagles. And then this year, they're supposed to have a good team again. They kicked off the season last Thursday night. Probably none of you watched it, but they kicked off and I was watching it. They were playing the Philadelphia Eagles in Philadelphia. Philadelphia got to, to um, have their championship banner from last year come down. They did mention in there that Atlanta was so close to having a title, but blew the biggest lead in Super Bowl history and therefore doesn't have one of those titles, which we were all grateful for the uh, announcers to remind us of because those of us who cared had forgotten, of course. And we played the game, and it was really close, and we lost on the last play of the game again. Four shots in the end zone at the end to beat Philadelphia, and we blew them all. And after the game, I heard an announcer who said, they were saying, like, do they need a new coach? Do they need a new strategy? You know, we're one game into the season, we already want a new coach. And the guy goes, Atlanta sports teams just need, like, group therapy. <laughs> Because you watched them, and they, act, they expected to lose this game, and they did. There's something about Atlanta sports franchise that this has become such a deal that they just expect to lose. They have a label, an identity. It's an official one. And now we believe it ourselves and live into it. What are the labels that you have? that you maybe even start identifying with and claiming as your own. Become much more devastating for individuals, can it? Recently, I talked to a, a father of two adult daughters, someone I love and respect greatly. He's just a wonderful, wise person. And in the midst of the conversation, he was talking about his youngest daughter, who's a little more flighty and had done some, something, and he was laughing. He said, well, I've always told him, 
My oldest is the smart one and my youngest one's the pretty one. You think about what growing up, hearing that day after day means. What are the labels you live with that both define you, make you feel important, make you feel like somebody? And what are the labels that bring us shame? We all have them and we all do the label others. You're the leader, the smart one, the funny one that keeps everybody laughing, the responsible one, the closer, reverend doctor, unemployed, retired, divorced. What are the labels that you have? I'd like you to think about those and to hold those before you because they're some of the most important identifying markers any of us have in our life. As we again read the scripture passage that is guiding our teaching series for the opening of our fall programming these five weeks, think about that and have that in your mind as we read Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. I invite you to listen to God's word to us all today. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him. And a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and she was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, for she said, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you? How can you say who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they had said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. And then at this they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask no matter who we are or how we walk in here, that you would meet us and speak to us your gospel, 
your good news. Give us ears to hear, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So friends, we're in a five-week series, as many of you know, entitled Encounter. And the understanding that this scripture is guiding us with each week is getting at the uniqueness of our faith. At the very core of Christian faith is a person, is a person. The very core of our faith is a person and therefore a relationship and therefore an encounter with that person. That lies at the very core of who we are. And yes, that means we engage with our mind, with our thoughts, but the core of our faith, while we are grateful for our traditions and our doctrine and our dogma and our theology, we are not at our core a religion of doctrine and dogma and theology. That's not the core of it. And likewise, we have emotions that come out of our hearts. And those emotions can be powerful. They can be good. They can uh, take us. But emotions are there one minute and gone the next. And at our core, we are not primarily based upon feelings. We, at the core of our faith, are following a person. And you and I are built to encounter that person. We are built for relationship. You think about your life, it shows us this. Think about your life, that when you think about the people who have significantly influenced you, the men and women who have shaped the very character of who you are, that most of the time many of us can point to books or movies or art or music, and all of these things do shape and form us, but not nearly as much as the people in our lives, our parents, our siblings, our children, our coworkers. It's relationships and it's in encounters that we are most formed. And this encounter, this relationship lies at the very heart of Christianity, an encounter with Jesus. In the first three weeks of this series, we talked about how do we set ourselves up to have that encounter? How do we do that? And we saw in this passage and, and, and in others in the Gospels that there are three behaviors, three disciplines that we seek to pursue as a church and individually. It starts with, we talked about the first week, the discipline of solitude. Finding, as we see here with Jairus, going to Jesus and saying, these are the things that are on my heart. These are the burdens. These are the things, Jesus, that I'm needing you to interact with. Do we take those in solitude and do we have a prayer life and, and disciplines to, to communicate with the Lord and to receive from the Lord individually? Secondly, we talked about how it's not just, though, an individual faith, that it also is built around a certain kind of community. A community where we carry one another to Jesus. A community where, where we are aware of one another's needs and we walk with one another towards Jesus. We talked about how we find and pursue that community in each of our lives. And then last week we talked about that the third behavior where we'll encounter God is in acts of service. As is we see that Jesus is one who heals and brings healing and wholeness to those around him, that we too are called forward. And in acts of service to others around us, we will encounter God. This Sunday and next Sunday, if we wrap this series up, we're going to move and shift a little bit to what does an encounter with God produce? What's the fruit of this encounter when we have them? Because there's things we see here and things that we'll talk about next week that we can both look for and then promote to the world around us, to the city around us. And specifically this morning, I want us to think about the labels that we have that we give to one another, because labels are centrally important in our life, and they are centrally important in this story. There are two individuals that Jesus encounters here that we only know them by their labels. Neither of them have a name, and their names in the end are not how they are known by either us or the community around them. They are known by the labels that they have. The first is the little girl who is sick. 
When Jesus shows up in the boat, she, he is encountered by this crowd and encountered by a father who is desperate to get him in front of his daughter who is dying. We never learn her name. She doesn't have a name as far as we know that anyone recognized at the time. Mark doesn't write down her name, but what he says is she belongs to Jairus. She is Jairus's daughter. And that label tells us a ton about who she was and how she was seen in her community. That label of being Jairus' daughter, well, who was Jairus? Says he was a leader of the synagogue at the time. And this is a time when, when business and politics and religion didn't live in separate realms like they do today. They were kind of combined together. And so we see that Jesus, uh, that Jairus, as he was a leader in the synagogue, would have been a leader in most of the aspects of the life of that community. He would have been recognized as a moral leader, a religious leader. He would have been respected as that. He would have been seen as somebody who uh, was influential in the probably political life of that community and the decisions that they made and that he also was someone who was probably a person of means, probably successful in business. He was someone who had the respect of the community. We can infer that by when Jesus gets off the boat, the crowd's not sitting back sort of going, man, well, that guy was born with a silver spoon in his mouth and now his daughter's suffering. He's going to learn what it's like for the rest of us. The crowd has this love and respect for Jairus that they encounter Jesus too. And it says that they are pushing him. It says that the crowd presses in on him, not to impede him from getting to this little girl, but almost ushering him into the presence of this little girl. They have a stake in who this little girl is. Jairus was the kind of person that parents and grandparents would look at their children and grandchildren and say, if you work really hard, maybe someday you can be like Jairus. Jairus' daughter probably had to live with the fact that parents and grandparents were saying to their children and grandchildren who were about her age, hey, we don't know her name, but see if you can become friends with that girl. It's going to be good for the rest of us. Sit next to her in class. See what's going to happen. Jairus' daughter is known by these labels, and by these labels we know that she was loved, she was valued, she was claimed. Jairus encounters Jesus and says to him, he's lost all decorum and he's just a desperate father at this point saying, please come and heal my little girl. These labels put Jairus' daughter on one end of the societal spectrum. And as Jesus then makes his way and agrees to go, again, it's not that he's repelled by any of this, he follows. He goes with Jairus and goes with the crowd. But as he is going, something happens. A second encounter with an individual whom we do not know her name either. She is, like Jairus' daughter, maybe only known by her labels. A woman who has been hemorrhaging for 12 years. What happens is this, that the crowd is pressing in on Jesus as he's going to see this little girl. And you can feel the energy and the tension, can you? You can imagine Jairus, who's finally got a sliver of hope that his little girl might be okay. And he's ushering Jesus through the town to get to his house. The crowd is pressing in on him as well, pushing him all around to try to get him in front of this little girl. And all of a sudden it says that someone touches his cloak and power goes out from him. And it says in the midst of that crowd, Jesus stops. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what Jairus is feeling that moment? We're like, why are you stopping? We got to keep, we're almost there. My little girl is dying. We're almost there. You see again that the crowd is pressing in. I'm probably going, you know, why are you stopping? And when Jesus says, who touched my clothes, even his disciples feel the anxiety and the tension of him stopping. They're like, how can you ask? Do you see all of these people? They kind of rebuke Jesus here. 
Like, why, how can you ask who touched my clothes? As John shared last week, these are people who have left their homes, left their families. They've probably been mocked and ridiculed that they left everything behind to go follow Jesus. And if Jesus can heal someone as influential as Jairus' daughter, man, they could go viral. <laughs> you can leverage that to do a lot. Right for the goodness of God. That's why we want to go viral. But he stops and waits. And out of the crowd comes this woman. No name. Just one who has been bleeding for 12 years. Someone who has seen as many doctors as she can and no one can bring her healing. And she has lost her identity. They don't care what her name is. She is the one who at the time was ceremonially unclean. She was the one that grandparents and grandparents hoped that their children stayed away from. She was the one that would show up on an occasion like this and people probably rolled their eyes because she can't get better and maybe God's telling us something in that. It doesn't say that she is someone's daughter or someone's spouse or someone's mother. She is not claimed by anybody in this passage. She is alone. And maybe, just maybe, some of us can relate to what some of those labels make us feel like. And it says that as she comes forward, when Jesus asks, who touched my clothes? The tension going on all around them. Mark writes some of the most beautiful words that I have ever heard, and I don't fully understand what it means, but if you look back here, it says that as she came forward, Jesus listened to her whole truth. Think about that. He listened to her whole truth. I bet that didn't take 10 seconds. I bet it involved some ugly crying on her part. And yet right there in Jairus and in the crowd saying, we've got to go, Jesus listens and values and cares and hears her story and is hanging on every word. And when she finally finishes, he says to her probably the most beautiful thing she's heard in 12 years, daughter. Daughter. That's your new label now. Daughter, your faith has made you well. As Jairus has had this little girl for 12 years, and now she is dying, and he is desperate to bring healing to her life. For 12 years, this woman has had the same identity of only being known by her labels as well, and now God is looking at her and saying to her, you are my child. And that's the only label that you need. When they finish that, it says that the people come from Jairus' house and say, you don't need to bother the teacher anymore because your little girl is dead. But again, it's not that Jesus favors one over the other. It's not that he favors the hemorrhaging woman over the little girl. And it's not that he favors the little girl over the hemorrhaging woman. He cares about that loss. He cares about Jairus. He cares about this little girl. And he then goes to the house. And even though he is mocked for going in and saying that she is only asleep, he then brings her healing as well. And in the end of this passage, we see these two women who are known only by their labels in the beginning, 
who are now equally claimed, equally loved, equally valued, equally known. What are the labels in your life? What are the labels, the titles that you have been given that make you feel like you're somebody? And what are the ones that make you feel like you're nobody? We all have them. We self-define by them. And we give them out. Who are you? And what we see in this passage is that if nothing else, an encounter with Jesus says that none of those labels matter anymore. That the good ones that we find pride in slip away in their meaning and the shameful ones that we are given melt away in the love of God because when we encounter Jesus, we are claimed, valued, loved as sons and daughters of God. Our souls find their worth. You are more loved than you can possibly imagine. Hallelujah. And amen. Let's pray. We ask this day that our souls would find their worth as we encounter you May we hear your word say to us, son, daughter, and may we rest in coming home. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.